My name is Victoria Carr. And my name is Olatz Monpeo. And you're listening to the Researcher's Code podcast, where we interview women who are pushing the boundaries of tech in scientific research. I am joined today by Dr. Tempest Van Sky, working as a machine learning engineer at Microsoft. Not only is she working in building software, but she also has impressive experience in designing and inventing devices with sensors from soil nutrition tests to smart wristwatches. Now, in her current role at Microsoft, Tempest uses machine learning to solve many different problems in health and business. Welcome, Tempest. So I want to first start off with asking you, you're working as a machine learning engineer at Microsoft and you're currently working on a project called Project Physio. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Could you just tell us a bit more about this project and what you're doing? Sure. Well, first of all, thanks very much for having me. Um, So Project Physio is a collaboration between Microsoft and Great Ormond Street Hospital. And it's a long, a long running project. But the part I'm focusing on is the data analysis of a trial. Now, cystic fibrosis is a, um, is a disease mainly affecting the lungs, and the children that have this disease have to do this uh, very burdensome physiotherapy where they blow into an in- inhaler device. Uh, so we're doing a trial where the, the kids have these in- devices with a pressure sensor in each uh, mouthpiece and a Fitbit watch, and we're analyzing this data. So what's, what's interesting about this is that it's a data-driven approach to understanding what works in physiotherapy. Um, so what we're trying to do is characterize how kids are doing their physiotherapy. Are they, are they actually following the instructions when they get home? Um, and what, uh, you know, what kind of physiotherapy actually leads to good outcomes? So is it the, the kids that are very adherent to instructions but do no physical exercise, or is it maybe kids that don't follow instructions but run around a lot, um, these suggest that there could be different patient subtypes in in cystic fibrosis. So we're analyzing all that data and using machine learning to to identify different patient subtypes, um, understand, uh, understand if gamification increases adherence to, to physiotherapy, and hopefully then we can um, give more tailored physiotherapy advice to to, to kids. So that's a re- really interesting project. That's really cool. So what have you found from your research? Well, it's still early days. Um, so I think the we're not even finished, the clinical team are not even finished recruiting all the patients. So it's, it's still early and it will run for at least another year. Um, but we are seeing we are seeing some promising results. Um, so the I think about 80% of our time is just preparing the data. No typical machine learning project. <laughs> yeah, um, data. <laughs> data cleansing and stuff. So just trying to characterize how are kids breathing? What is good breathing? Uh, I'm focusing mainly on the breath, but um, it's actually a, it's a big project. There's at least three data scientists and four software engineers working on this because um, we're not just fiddling around in a Jupyter notebook. We've got this is a, a big high scale data pipeline that we're also building, uh, you know, obviously using Azure Microsoft's uh, cloud platform. So it's, it's actually, it's, it's a big project. So lots of data cleaning so far. Uh, and then we're sort of looking at clustering different, different patient types and using some unsupervised machine learning techniques. Cool. And what impact has this had on your patients? 
Um, so, so far we, we're not giving, we're, we're not, because the results are so early, uh, we're not um, making any adjustments yet. But I think the clinical team will use these findings and then in sort of a year or so when the trial is finished, they'll look at the results and see, you know, should we maybe um, modify the physiotherapy instructions we're, we're giving to, to children? Um, and yeah, can we can we say that for for this type of child, this type of physiotherapy would be better? You know, is it doing ten breaths instead of um, doing twenty breaths instead of ten breaths? And how often should they do it? So the impact will be more personalised physiotherapy treatment for each child. Yeah. So I saw a video. Um, I think I looked your research up, and there was a, a really nice, uh, quite heartfelt video of kids. Um, like improving their responses to um, the gamification of the physiotherapy. So that was quite in interesting to see as well. Yeah, there was a whole lot of work, um, you know, before I was on this project about gamification and the actual sensors in the devices. It's a, it's a huge project. Mm. Um, so what we're looking at is can we actually quantify the way kids are breathing and then see what impact the gamification is having? Because we yeah. all sort of, you know, assume it's a good thing, but it would be nice to have the data to back that up. Exactly. Great. Cool. Yeah. Are you more interested in cystic fibrosis or the analysis that is behind this project? Um, I'm personally personally interested in both. Um, mm -hmm. So we, we're on a very multidisciplinary team. So we have these clinical experts that are absolute experts in cystic fibrosis. Mm -hmm. They're very interested in the data analysis. And then we have these sort of my data science team who's very interested in the cystic fibrosis. I don't think you can do machine learning or data analysis without an understanding of the domain. Mm -hmm. So we work very closely and there's absolutely no way we could divorce the two sides. So the data wouldn't make any sense. So we've all learned a lot about cystic fibrosis as much as we can in the you know, short few months. Uh, but we, we, we literally have the clinicians in every single engineering stand-up every day and they know exactly what we're doing and we discuss the data all the time. So we, we need to have a big interest in the, the disease as well. Before you worked as a researcher at numerous biotech startups, um, including Repositive in Cambridge, Science Practice and Control Group in London. And as a designer and inventor, you also developed a device called Soil Cards at Science Practice. So as I understand it, it's an inexpensive device that measures nutrients in soil for farmers who perhaps aren't able to afford expensive equipment. Could you just tell us a bit more about this project that you did and how you help these farmers? Yeah, so um, so soil testing is is actually very unaffordable to a lot of farmers in, in developing countries. You know, in the UK, if you're a farmer, you can afford to send a soil sample to a lab. You know, it costs sort of 20 pounds, you use the post, it's fine and you get your results back. Um, and it's important to test soil so you know uh, what fertilizer to use because fertilizer is expensive and if you use it wrongly, you are damaging the environment too because it runs off into, into rivers. Um, so it's really important to test your soil. But uh, farmers in developing countries, for example in Kenya, um, it, it can't afford that, that, that cost of sending the soil sample in and and even if they could, it's very it's very difficult to actually get a soil sample from a rural village to the to Nairobi where the where the government uh, testing lab is. So there's just a massive barrier to testing soil. 
but so many people in this world are farmers. I mean, coming from healthcare, this was a surprise to me how many people are farmers. Um, so uh, I wanted a, a soil test that would be as easy to use as a pregnancy test. Mm-hmm. Um, so before pregnancy tests, women had to go into a, you know, to go visit a doctor or go into a hospital to know if they were pregnant. And that, that was such a revolutionary piece of technology. Um, so I wanted to um, make soil testing as easy as pregnancy testing. So I took inspiration from the pregnancy tests. And what's so great about it is, one, you apply the sample straight onto the, onto the test. Uh, and two, it's really easy to read. So why are soil kits so, so uh, why are they not like that? Um, there are some soil kits that are portable, but they're usually electronic. You need, you know, analyzers or lots of complicated chemistry, but I didn't want to go down that route. Um, so, so we made these paper, completely paper devices. There's no electronics whatsoever. And you uh, put soil and water onto this little paper device. It's small, like smaller than a credit card. And then these colored dots appear and the, you count the dots and then you can see how much nutri- uh, nitrogen is in your soil, phosphorus, potassium, pH. Um, and, and this is, you get a result in about two minutes. So you can test your, your soil on the farm without having to send soil anywhere and instantly know how your soil is doing. Um, and this seems quite, quite different to software engineering. It's true, it has nothing to do with it. Um, but it was this, the, the te- technology behind it is this paper microfluidics, which I'd kind of seen in my PhD lab. Um, so that's not what my PhD was on, but it was technology I had seen. And I just thought this is really promising. And so I ended up um, going to agricultural conferences and very quickly learning about farming. <laughs> that's so exciting. So you took that that's leap amazing. of faith and decided, you know, paper fluidic devices will work how did you how, how did you know so the so paper microfluidics have, have mainly been used in sort of medical tests in the healthcare space um and that's what got me interested um so sort of you know mobile blood tests on paper and this is technology comes uh, mainly out of uh, george whiteside's lab at harvard um so really really excellent technology but i thought can we use that in a different field in agriculture um, so that, that was a massive, that was really difficult when you've spent years and years and years working in healthcare to suddenly pivot and look in a completely other area. So that mind shift from healthcare to agriculture was, um, was quite monumental. It was actually surprisingly hard. Um, but how did I know it would work? Um, so I was working in science practice, a startup, and we had no lab. Um, so I started getting... Uh, paper and plastic and simple materials um, that I could order online and just prototyping and experimenting. And it was actually in a way beneficial that we had no lab because that means that I was building this really robust, simple technology um, and trying it out and being creative and getting it to work in you know, non-lab conditions. Mm-hmm. And then when I won a grant to buy lab time at, at Imperial, I went back to Imperial to do that, I actually could hit the ground, r- the ground running because I had done all this prototyping before. So uh, so that worked out really well. Highly recommend doing that <laughs> so that I could be more efficient in the lab. Do you know where like soil cards have been used? So they're, they're still in development. Actually, I'm looking for funding, if anyone's listening to this, <laughs> looking for funding to, to carry on developing them. 
Uh, so they're in a prototype stage and I've taken them to Kenya um, and, and tried them out with farmers there. Uh, so smallholder farmers that have, you know, sort of about an acre of land um, and got their feedback on the product and what they'd like to see from it. Um, so that's, that's the stages in at the moment, looking for funding to, to carry on with the, with the social enterprise. You also work on a project developing a watch that measures smooth and cognition for patients with depression at Control Group. Can you tell us more about it? Yeah, so that, that project at uh, Control Group was part of a venture called Cognition Kit. So we were, we were studying, um, we were investigating whether we could measure people's mood and cognition using wearables like a watch. Um, so uh, we were doing a trial with people with depression. So depression affects not only your mood, but also your cognition. So we were interested in whether uh, you could track precisely people's mood and cognition over time over the course of this trial. So I was involved in developing the cognitive tests on a watch, so they're like little kind of puzzles. So you get a little notification to do a puzzle, and these are uh, then testing specific areas of your cognitive function. And so you get this really full picture of cognition over time. Because traditionally, if you want to test cognition, you know, because you're depressed or because um, maybe you have Alzheimer's or um, concussion, anything that affects cognition, you would go into uh, a clinic and you would have a traditional battery of tests, maybe on paper, maybe on a computer, and you might do that every three months. So you get these very sparse data points about what your cognition and mood are doing. So we were gathering data sort of every day about your cognition and mood, so you can get a much fuller picture and see these small fluctuations and then ultimately understand you know, maybe is the, the treatment you're using for your depression, is that um, working, is that helping your cognition, or is that helping your mood, or is it helping both at the same time? So yeah, so that was a really interesting study at, at Control Group. As you were growing up, science has always interested you, um, but you, as some of your bias suggests, you grew up as a daughter of an artist, surrounded by art, and you almost studied art at university. So what made you change your mind and end up studying for a degree in biomedical science or biomedical engineering rather at Wits University in South Africa? Um, so yeah, I, I applied, I was very close to going into a fine art degree like my mother, um, but I, I, I love building things and uh, I've always loved science fiction. And so my, my role models growing up were like cartoon characters because there were no actual people that were role models for me. They were cartoon characters like Donatello, the Ninja Turtle, because he was always coding, <laughs> and uh, MacGyver, because he was always solving problems <laughs> with, with, you know, real, you know, chewing gum and, and a string. Um, so I liked the building of technology, and I liked science fiction, like all of uh, Batman's gadgets, loved that, and I you know, just love science fiction, robotic arms, that kind of thing. Um, and then I just didn't have any real human role models. I didn't know any engineers or any scientists at all. Um, I didn't even know engineering was a profession until I finished school and my principal, uh, the, the headmaster, said, have you considered using your, you know, your good grades to study engineering? And I was like, what's engineering? Mm -hmm. And he said, well, engineers are people who build bridges and structures. And I, that was like a light bulb moment for me that like, I could build stuff as a profession. 
Um, so luckily he said that to me and that's why I applied to engineering. Um, and yeah, I decided I would, I would study engineering and pursue art in my spare time rather than studying art and trying to do engineering in my spare time, which seems like a more difficult task. Yeah, because obviously you didn't have a reference going up, so you're like, oh, I really enjoy doing this. And there was no almost stereotypes to take that away from you. And then someone giving you that light bulb moment, you're like, oh my God, I can actually do this. That's yeah. So, cool. so I guess on, on one hand, there were, there were no role models to say, you know, carry on in this, uh, you know, carry on into science or engineering. But on the other hand, yeah, like you said, no stereotypes. So there was no one sort of telling me, oh, you can't do science or engineering. So, I mean, I just liked those subjects, so I did them. So, yeah. Yeah, that's great. So you then decided to get a second degree in electrical engineering at WITS. Um, so is it because you're interested more in the building side of creating devices rather than the actual medical side? Because with the first degree you did biomedical engineering where you learn how to like I guess you um, dissected things mm -hmm. as well as building devices so were you more interested in the kind of technical side of it? I've always been primarily interested in healthcare so that's that's why I did biomedical engineering uh, and then I nearly went into medical school actually I think I got accepted in about two days before starting pulled out and went into electrical engineering um, so that's always been my intention is to work in healthcare, but I realized I don't need to be a doctor to work in healthcare. Um, and I actually went into electrical engineering to be a better biomedical engineer because back then biomedical engineering was very new. I mean, now it seems obvious that you need engineers working in healthcare, but that was the first degree in the whole country, the first year it had ever run. So there weren't, there weren't a lot of, well, there weren't any jobs for all these biomedical engineers graduating. Um, and also the degree itself is not uh, a well-known or recognized degree like traditional engineering degrees are. Uh, so that's why I went into electrical engineering to be a more sort of a really good biomedical engineer with a really solid foundation. So when did you actually start learning to code? Was this in your biomedical engineering or electrical engineering degree? Or was this beforehand? Actually, actually uh, biomedical engineering. Mm -hmm. yeah. So you started coding then? Yeah, wow. so a lot of people had somehow arrived at university knowing how to code. <laughs> they just learned in their spare time or often from their fathers or brothers or uncles um so there was yeah some people that knew but otherwise yeah first year was a very steep learning curve mm -hmm. uh, learning how to code in c and c plus plus matlab and and even microprocessors um yeah wow. so how many women were on your course of interest do you remember uh it was it was very very little uh maybe maybe like 10 percent yeah but in some classes, I was the only woman, like some electives, like um, yeah, telecommunications or control theory, whatever it was, there were yeah. some classes where I was the only And how one. did you find that? Were you okay with it? Or did you find you were like the only woman in the room and it was a bit strange? It, it, I think at the time I didn't like it. It made me sad, but I didn't have the vocabulary to know what was wrong. So there were definitely behaviors that were, that were you know, not inclusive, <laughs> to say the least. Um, and definitely the environment could be improved, but I didn't have the vocabulary to say this is wrong. Uh, this should be, there should be more women and, and I shouldn't be made to feel isolated. There was, there was one, one awful example where we had to pick um, teams for a project and I was the only woman in the class and I was the only one not picked for a team. So I was like on my own and it was so embarrassing. I had to go to the lecture and say, no one's picked me for their team 
I don't know what to do. <laughs> and he felt sorry for me and forced me into someone else's team. Yeah. Um, so th things like that are just like not very encouraging. Um, but I just didn't, uh, you know, I just wasn't, there, you know, there was before sort of Twitter and speaking to other women about these things. So I was very kind of clueless. You just might be thinking, oh, it's just the way that it's supposed to be. So exactly. I really understand when you say I don't have the vo vocabulary. You just don't know why. No, it's just like, yeah. why is it like that? It's because I'm a woman or because, oh, maybe I'm just not that good, right? Yes. And it's where all these self-doubt starts. Exactly, I yeah. Think. Yeah, um, like, well, maybe if I don't know how to code because I didn't do it with my father, maybe, you know, maybe I shouldn't be here because I don't know how to code already or because, oh, my uncle doesn't have, I don't have an oscilloscope at home like everyone else does. So, um, you know, maybe I ought not to be an engineer. Yeah, imposter syndrome, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Did not know that word back then. No, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a recent word. Yeah, so so after the electrical engineering, I then um, wanted to be a better biomedical engineer still. Uh, still couldn't find any any interesting work as a biomedical engineer, so just sort of naively signed up for a, for a PhD. Um, and and then the, the choice was sort of um, this very lab-based PhD at Imperial, or a very computer-based PhD at Oxford. And I wanted to get value for money. So <laughs> I chose the lab-based one. I wanted to use as much lab equipment as possible. <laughs> uh, I was just very, very naive. I didn't know anyone with a PhD. There was just the sort of no guidance. Um, yeah, so my PhD was in electrochemical sensors, which are a type of medical sensor uh, that you can use to measure mainly sort of body fluids. Um, so uh, there's kind of sensors you get on wearables that measure sweat, uh, urine, blood, saliva. Also these kinds of sensors can be implanted in the body, implanted in the brain. Um, so sort of broadly looking at these sensors, um, the actual uh, hardware as well as the data analysis and uh, mainly using it to study cancer and how uh, cancer spreads around the body. Yeah. Cool. So how did you know where to do a PhD? Because you mentioned that you, uh, you didn't know anyone doing a PhD. So how did you find out about doing a PhD and what made you move to the UK? Uh, it, yeah, it, it was a lot of chance and luck. Like I, I literally didn't know anyone. Um, there was, there actually was, there, were, there was a defining moment when I was, had done an internship in, the, in a government laboratory called the CSIR. Uh, in South Africa, and I met a woman there uh, who was in the robotics lab, and she gave me her business card, and it said that she had a PhD in engineering from Oxford. And I just remember holding this business card and being like, wow. <laughs> Here is a woman, I think, uh, I think she's Zimbabwean if I remember correctly. Here is a woman from Southern Africa, like me, and she has a degree a PhD in engineering from Oxford. My mind was just blown. Like, if someone like me could do that, then, like, maybe I could do that. And that was just, like, a wild idea. Like, no one had ever given me permission to, to, to think of such a wild idea. Mm -hmm. um, so I just, I just ran with it. And, and luckily, the, the lab I was in, the um, Klunga lab at CSR, um, my supervisor was, was an American uh, researcher, and he was very supportive of you know applying overseas so that that was really that was really key but it was very sort of a lucky thing it was not um, well planned at all so 
whoever out there gave Tempest her business card, <laughs> we wouldn't be having this interview if you hadn't given her that business card. So <laughs> maybe she'll come out the woodwork. That's so cool. Great. There were a lot of differences uh, when you moved to the UK. What, what shocked you the most? Um, so the just the resources in, in the lab was amazing. Like I said, that's why I chose the PhD. Um, like I love playing on lab equipment. Like I love I love machinery. I love um, sensors and measurements and and you know I got to I got to play on these really expensive microscopes that you just don't get in South Africa. Um, and it was just yeah, just the, the resources that Imperial has and that the overseas universities have are amazing. So I just had a lot of fun in the in the lab using everything all the time. <laughs> Amazing. So, did you think you got value for money? Yes, I feel like I got value for money. I, think, I don't think that's the best way to choose your PhD. <laughs> in hindsight, um, I don't know. I don't think that's a bad thing. I mean, <laughs> you've turned out quite well now, so yeah. maybe that should be another piece of advice: get value for money. <laughs> yeah. While you were studying for your degrees, you continued to produce art, illustration, and photography. And you're also exhibiting internationally and you're entering yourself competitions as well. So that's such a stark contrast to going into engineering. And I think a lot of people, including myself, I guess, would consider arts and sciences as two distinct disciplines. But as an inventor, have you seen art being useful for your devices and your designs? Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, I mean, I guess, uh, may maybe not directly and literally, uh, you know, sort of the, the painting skills don't come in, but it's more the, the, the creativity. Um, so I guess to invent something and to do something different and unprecedented, you need a certain amount of creativity to think of possibilities that were not there before. Um, so, yeah, for, for example, with the soil cards, you know, switching to agriculture uh, is, is an example of thinking creatively. Um, also, another example from soil cards about being how you know being creative helped an invention is um, uh, I wanted to design uh, devices that that could work without any electricity because I want them to be you know in rural parts of of a farm or farm farm district. So, uh, where how how do you build a sensor without electronics? Well, I thought, well, how did they used to do? How did they used to do sensors before electricity? Mm -hmm. So I went into the library and got out a really old book of of sort of chemistry before electronics. Uh, so I think it was a sort of um, sort of around 1900 that kind of time, and and just looked up really old chemistry tests um, to see how they would have worked, and then thought, now could these old tests be applied to paper? So that was quite a kind of uh, creative diversion, um, which which I think, which I think was key to its success. And actually, even now with the, the project Physio, there was this really difficult um, uh, signal processing challenge that we were having. Um, and I tried sort of I think I tried five different techniques coming from traditional engineering, and none of this was working. And eventually, I thought, well, what does this data look like? Oh, it actually looks really similar to the data I've seen in a chemistry lab. And I ended up using a signal processing technique from chemistry that solved the problem really well. So I think that sort of being able to think about other fields um, and br yeah, bring, bring ideas creatively together like that can be really useful. 
also working in um, in ocean science was um, not something I ever expected to do. But again, you can take ideas from engineering and apply them um, to completely different fields. Um, So I think that sort of creativity about connecting different scientific disciplines has been useful in invention. Do you think your broad domain knowledge comes from experience of doing lots of different projects in the past or has it come from your natural curiosity and creativity that you've had? I think I think it's I think it's a combination of both curiosity always you know reading about other fields but then also experience so I've had a lot of uh, because I spent I actually spent 10 years in university doing a lot of different courses Mm -hmm. and then and then working in a lot of different startups and just picking up knowledge along the way so I've had really diverse experiences like you know dissecting human bodies being inside a coal-powered you know power station um, doing really diverse things and all those experiences sort of add up and and build this this body of knowledge that hopefully I can then draw on so I think it is a kind of curiosity like why would I go to an ocean science conference because it sounds interesting (laughs) (laughs) okay so I always ask this with every guest that we are host so what advice would you give to somebody who wanted to go into tech and this is especially for those who are underrepresented in tech including women and BAME individuals what advice would you give to them um, so, oh, so much advice. Um, I guess the first one is don't don't be discouraged if you feel like you don't fit in. Um, I've had just countless experiences from from day one in engineering where I wondered I'm not like everyone else here. Um, you know, everyone else is finding this so easy. I'm the only one who finds this difficult. Maybe I'm not cut out for this, and that has never been true. Like that, I've always persisted, and it's it's always worked out. So just don't feel like you're uh, you're not supposed to be in tech because that's it's just not true. Like again and again, I found that. Um, so my advice is actually to be just bold, just be really bold and really cheeky. Like go out of your comfort zone, and just like put in a cheeky application here and a cheeky application there. <laughs> <laughs> just be just be bold because like fortune favors the brave, and um, just uh, you know you're not you're never gonna you're never going to get into an amazing university if you don't apply. You're never going to get into an amazing job if you don't apply. Um, so absolutely absolutely, just kind of launch in and, and be slightly more bold and confident than you actually feel. Because um, I, I, I feel like a lot of underrepresented groups are lacking in, in confidence. So just kind of fake that confidence. Fake it to make it. Fake it until you make <laughs> it, yeah. And, and also now is, uh, is a, a better time, and this is a cliche, but it's a better time than ever to get involved in tech now because tech is so is so big there's so many new jobs um it's it's much more supportive and inclusive than it used to be so uh and there's so many free resources i'm sure everyone says this but it really is the best time to be getting into tech so do it if you're interested yeah you are listening to the researchers code podcast If you enjoyed this episode, why not subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever podcasting platform you use. Also, if you could give us a rating, that would be really helpful for other people finding us.